You're listening to the Sound Girls podcast with just Katie today. And joining me for an interview is Heather Kirby. Heather Kirby is a mastering engineer and audio educator. She owns and operates her studio, Dreamlands Mastering, in Prince Edward County, Ontario, where she works with artists to complete their creative visions and prepares their music to be unveiled to listeners. Heather found her passion for mastering after a winding freelance career in engineering and mixing for music, film TV post, and live TV broadcast. A longtime advocate for gender equity in the audio industry, she developed and produced a funded music production workshop event for women, trans, and non-binary folks in Toronto called Resampled in 2013. As an educator, Heather has been teaching sound and music production courses to undergraduate and graduate students with ex-universities, RTA School of Media for the past nine years. Heather is also a musician and member of the bands Obiju and Vaj Halen. Hey, Heather. Welcome. <laughs> Hi, Katie. <laughs> good, good. It's nice to put a face to the voice I've been hearing on the podcast. So <laughs> I'm so honored that you. that you've heard it before. That's yeah, so nice. yeah, of course. I love it. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Well, I'm so happy to have you, and now mm. you're you're going to be a voice on the podcast. Cool, like it is exciting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Will you listen to your own episode? Or are you a person? Ooh, like- I don't know about that. I have yeah. a hard time with with that kind of thing. I might just trust it going out in the world, and you know, whoever hears it hears it. Um, we'll see if I'm feeling brave one day. It takes a lot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it does. Like I, the only way I'll listen to the episodes is if I edit it, because then I'm like in control. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, I have anxiety. I'm like, oh, Katie, stop saying that. Even yeah. Too late. It's been said. It's been said. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, cool. Heather, um, I always like to start right at the beginning and uh, kind of talk about your roots. And I guess you know how you say this every time. Because <laughs> you listen to the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, like, uh, how did you get into audio in the first place and uh, find your way? Yeah, I mean... Uh, as I said in my bio, it's a long kind of winding path that I've been on. Good. Tell it I've all. Been, I've been all over this. So you're okay for, you know, how I don't Absolutely. know how much time we have. but oh, nice. Okay. Yeah. No, I'm happy to hear. Um, okay. So we're starting from like early, early days. Um, it would be, I guess, when I first started playing guitar. Um, and I'm not really from a musical family. My family appreciates music, but they're not, you know, musical people necessarily. They've been super supportive of my musical career, like, letting me have band practices and drum sets in my bedrooms, in the garage. You know, they're very patient, come to my shows, et cetera, but not musical necessarily themselves. But um, my dad did have this old acoustic guitar my mom had bought for him years before the kids were born. And there were just these kind of like printed out sheets of how to play guitar, like his early lessons in there. And I remember seeing it in the basement and not really thinking anything of it. Um, And then it was like, grade seven or eight or something. And a couple of boys in my school class started showing up at parties with guitars and playing and sort of like, you know, starting to catch the attention of girls. And uh, I was like pretty impressed by it, maybe like self-consciously or subconsciously. I was like, oh, I want to impress girls too. Um, (laughs) But maybe didn't pick up on that until more specifically until later. But anyways, um, that was sort of what what motivated me to uh, go and pull that guitar out from the basement be like, I'm going to play guitar at parties too. Um, so yeah, I just started kind of reading through this like printed out guitar. Oh, sorry. My um, audio did a funny thing. I okay. just like cut you out really. Can you uh, hear me now? Check, check. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Sorry. Can you just start the sentence again? I was like, oh, oh sure. Drop 
<laughs> um, so yeah, I think anyway, so what was inspired to pull my dad's acoustic guitar out of the basement. And then I just started leafing through his instruction notes and just teaching myself how to play. Um, so yeah, just kind of like self-taught musician. Um, and eventually like joined my big band in high school playing bass um, and random other bands. I'd say like my first show I remember playing with a band properly. I think I was in grade 10 and it was doing uh, Rage Against the Machine covers at my Catholic church talent show. Oh, hardcore. Wow, <laughs> Very that, hardcore. Uh, yeah. I don't know. Like, yeah, it was pretty, it's pretty badass actually. Um, but yeah. And then I eventually met like my first kind of like real band in high school and started playing more shows, like proper shows and, um, eventually went into a recording studio for the first time. And I imagine there's a lot of stories that come up like this, you know, being the musician, walking into the recording studio and just being like, oh my gosh, what is going on here? This is incredible. I need to know it all. Um, so that's, that's what happened with me. Um, and it sort of led me towards, um, doing my undergrad in radio and television arts um, at what, what I'll call X University. Um, and so radio television arts was now called RTA School of Media, but I, that's what I did for my undergrad. And I focused in on um, the kind of audio stream. So started learning about music production and um, engineering and uh, yeah, it was awesome. Um, really fun in, in my undergrad, both like you know, I met one of my new bandmates there and then kind of met the other bandmates from outside of school. Um, and then shortly after I graduated, um, our band Obiju formed. Um, and Obiju is like a orchestral pop rock band with like six or seven members. Um, oh, we, cool. yeah, it was fun. It was fun. We were together for around eight years or so, um, released a number of LPs. We toured like North America and Europe and China, Japan, um, like did a fair oh, amount wow. of touring. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. It was really fun. Um, yeah, it was, it was, it was a blast. It was some of the best kind of times, um, I've had was, you know, being, being with this band, being on tour, it was, it was a great experience. Um, but obviously, you know, with like in a touring band, I'm, you know, I'm on the road, off the road. Uh, so needed to start working in between to kind of fill in the gaps. So I just started doing my own freelance engineering, uh, music production, mixing, and so on. Um, working in, you know, proper studios across Toronto, um, also makeshift studios, you know, bringing a bunch of gear into a basement or an art gallery or like to a live show to record that. Um, and yeah, just filling in the gaps that way. Um, at one point, with a couple of friends, we sort of opened a proper studio um, and we called it Kirby's Dreamland. Do you know Kirby's Dreamland? Well, it's like, like, a, like we're talking Kirby, like Kirby, like circle. Like yeah, the, yeah, the, the, the Kirby character. circle, like the kind of like vacuum circle, like sucking up. Yeah, like my yeah, go-to I, character yes. in Smash Bros. Amazing. Yes, yes, okay, yes. great, great. Um, so yes, we, we called our studio Kirby's Dreamland and we had it, it was like, for about a year and it was the studio space that we rented from someone else who had like a, an apartment connected to the studio and um it, it was fantastic we all just kind of like pulled our gear together but it had a proper you know control room live room booth and everything uh, so it was really exciting um and then 
there was a neighbor on the other side of this person we were renting from, and he just complained about the noise so much and started calling the cops on us over and over again. And it got to the point where the person renting us the space was like, I'm out of here. <laughs> like, if you guys want to take over the whole space and the apartment unit and everything and deal with this guy, it's all yours. And at that point, we none of us felt like safe doing that. So it shut down pretty quickly um, after, yeah, about a year. Uh, so I just kind of went back to just studio hopping. Um, you know, an artist would come to me to work with them. We would figure out the best space to work um, and book it and just go in there together. Um, Is this, uh, by the way, was this uh, recording you were doing or was it mastering right away? No, sorry. This was um, engineering, mixing, production, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, you know, depending on what project I was either doing all three or, you know, just engineering or, you know, just mixing or, yeah. And X University uh, prepares you for that? Like, I'm curious, did you feel prepared or like, how did you get the chops to, I mean, you went from like touring to like, okay, we're just going to open our own thing. Um, well, I mean, yeah, university did prepare me for it somewhat. I did focus in on the audio stream. Um, I'd say that their, the media school at X university has really developed a lot from when I was a student there. And now there's a lot more kind of focused music production paths that you can take there. Um, at the time it was limited, but I did definitely pick up a fair amount of engineering schools. I, I actually, or engineering skills, and I actually did work at the school, afterwards full-time as like a tech support and so I really kind of learned the ins and outs of the studio through that Um, I was teaching I started teaching kind of right away like workshops within classes and um, yeah so that I would say that that's probably I I jumped past that one part because there's so much to go through here but oh my god you do it all I'm so impressed like are you just busy all the time yeah so I I worked I did work um, in like a kind of a support position at the school after I graduated. And that was like where everything was really solidified. When you're in a position where you are teaching a thing, you've got to know the thing inside out. And so I really like, it was a bit, you know, I learned a lot more in that process than I was, than I did when I was an actual student. Um, And that gave me the confidence to work at other studios outside the school. Um, And yeah, which is great. I feel like I've just kind of was able to gain the skills that I can walk into any studio situation and, and figure my way around pretty, pretty well. So, um, yeah. And then just doing this kind of freelance basis really worked well for music, just filling in the gaps and, you know, um, it's probably well known that musicians, especially at an early stage of their career are not really sitting on gold mines. So, um, finding those bits and pieces to fill in the gaps were, was really important. Um, and so that, yeah, that's what I was doing. Um, so yeah, engineering, mixing. And then I also, um, was interested and it was when Obiju had gone to the CBC and we did a live performance and there was someone I knew who was on the team who was miking us up, um, for this CBC broadcast. And so I reached out to him and I was like, oh, how did you start working at the CBC? He connected me with someone else. Um, and then I started, I joined the casual roster at the CBC to do live TV um, mixing, which was cool. so for live broadcasts. It was mostly the news show. So the national broadcast of the news show, um, which was, it was really fun. It's a really intense job because it's live and you're yeah. sitting there and it's like, you really have to split your brain because you're listening to your program material, trying to make sure your hosts sound good. 
you're also listening to a director speaking at the same time. So you're listening to two sources at once and also following a program guide to sort of you know, like look ahead and know what's coming next. And then you could be interrupted at any second with like a remote, a live remote from anywhere across the world that you then have to dial up. Um, you're also dealing with like intercoms and communication within the the team. And it's a lot, but it's this like really intense. But when you finish a show and it goes well, a really rewarding experience. You're like, when you nail something, it's like, it feels yeah. really good. So um, I enjoyed it, but I was on their casual roster. So I was getting calls at like three in the morning being like someone, you know, the mixer called in sick. Can you show up? And, you know, starting at 6am kind of thing. So, you know, there was a number of those, um, you know, coffee shops weren't even open yet, which was a problem. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I, I was into it. Um, it definitely was precarious employment. Like, you know, it's a, it's a, CBC is a public broadcaster. So they're, you know, who they can hire, who they can retain, how they can expand really all depends on government support. And so like they've suffered a number of cuts like on an ongoing basis with different governments. And so lots of layoffs, like mass layoffs at different times. And um, so I was always just on the casual roster and it just was just this really precarious work, which is, I don't know, it's a th been a theme, precarious labor in my my career. And I think a lot of people in this industry, um, you know, trying to find stability and feel, you know, like you can rely on a specific thing. It's just, it's hard to nail that down. So yeah, it was, it was a great experience and it was fun to do that for a little while, but I didn't last long at the CBC. Eventually I just said like, I can't, I can't do these calls yeah. anymore. Um, and you know, other things were busy as well. Like I, I kept pretty occupied between music and the music work, um, like music is in my band and the music work, like engineering and mixing production. So, um, yeah, so I, I stopped working in the um, broadcast sound um, and also started doing like a little bit of audio post work just on independent productions as well. Um, and then eventually the band went on hiatus. Um, and so I was like, OK, I'm going to go back to school. And I went to do uh, my master's in communication and new media at McMaster University. Um, and... Yeah. So when I was there, what I was really excited about doing, and it was sort of this culmination of years of working in freelance sound at this point, realizing how precarious it is and also feeling pretty isolated being a woman in sound as well, which is, I really, really didn't know anyone else doing that work at the, really? yeah, at all. There's a few kind of like bigger names out there, but personally, I didn't know any other women doing the work at all. Um, so it led me to, yeah, pursue a research project, um, sort of looking at why, you know, why that's, it's such an, uh, unbalanced, you know, gender unbalanced, uh, profession, um, and trying to think of ways to move past that and, and, um, better support women entering the field. So, yeah, yeah so that was my focus on my project. It was in 2013, um, 2012, 2013. And at the time, I didn't really even know anyone else doing this research or this work at all. Like I'd heard of Wham, for example, they were already around and I was, I read a bit about them. I was like, that's awesome. 
um, a couple other like little projects, but it just wasn't really a big discussion at that time. Um, it's really weird. So yeah, I did this project and then I, uh, kind of the project culminated in a workshop event for women, trans and non-binary people, um, that was led by women professionals in music production. And, um, yeah, it was just this really cool event, put it, put it on in Toronto. And, um, I, I went into it because I didn't know anyone else doing the work. I had to really hunt down people to present. I didn't know most of the presenters. I had to ask other people and they'd say, talk to this person, talk to this person, and eventually put together like a really incredible team of um, workshop leaders, um, including Annalise Nerona, which is how I met her was through this project. Oh, and, wow. Yeah. Yeah, it's super cool. Um, it is. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I know we live in the country together and we're, we're best buds. So, um, she calls you her lumberjack friend. Lumberjack friend. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's so cool. I love that. I love how that's how it started. Yeah. 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 It's really cool. Um, and, but you know, like, so I found these, these people to lead the workshops, but I still thought nobody would sign up for, like, I didn't know people were interested in it. So I didn't think anyone was going to come to this event that I was putting my heart and soul into. Um, but uh, yeah, once I launched the event online and opened up registration, it filled up so quickly. And it was just this like really incredible experience of like going from feeling super isolated to being like, oh, but, like there's other people out there and they're not really in the spotlight necessarily, but they're there and they're in the place that I'm in. And it just felt like it felt exciting um, at that moment. And um yeah, it was it was really it was really cool. I learned a lot through that experience and um, I helped my perspective shift a little bit. So, um, yeah. What was um, your finding like with uh, doing that research project? What were the uh, contributing factors to why there's yeah. many women in the spotlight or that you could find? Yeah, I mean, it was sort of exploring how lack of same similar gendered role models and mentors can play a big factor in, um, you know, women, trans, non-binary people um, feeling like they could succeed if they pursued this path. You know, there's early, like looking at early technological socialization and the way girls are socialized differently around technology than boys from a very young age and how that impacts things. Um, just the way that, you know, women who were doing the work, their work wasn't getting the same. Um, it was sort of, it was just being marginalized more. It wasn't being, um, included in publications, in, you know, in festivals, in, um, you know, just, just in public, uh, venues and avenues. It wasn't respected in the same way or promoted in the same way. Um, and just looking at all these factors and thinking about how important it is for, and how important it was for me personally. My, you know, this whole thing was based on how did I feel? What was my experience? How can we talk about this uh, openly and address these specific issues? And so for me, it's like, I haven't seen any other women doing this work. I want to see it. And that would have meant a lot to me um, to have seen that and feel like I I would have felt a lot more confidence earlier in my career if, if I'd seen that and felt like I could make it. <laughs> um. Yeah because I've seen other women make it, quote unquote, make it. Um, So, uh, yeah, so it was the idea of not just talking about 
the ideas and theories around why this is a problem, um, not just like interviewing people about their careers, which is also super important, but also just like getting together. I'm so sorry, I keep banging my mic. Um, (laughs) But um, also like getting together and touching technology together, like using it and like, you know, technology being just such an important part of this, like it's an important part of the job and um, knowing that not all people have access to technology at a young age or are supported to use it and, and getting together with someone who is confident with it, who um, can help guide you and encourage you and how much that just tactile experience of like touching, <laughs> making, making yeah. sound with, with a, a piece of gear and how much that means and how much it can kind of um, like create a, if you will, signal flow between you know, touching and like connection in your brain and like really locking in an experience, I think is, um, was part of this. So these workshops were hands-on, um, and technology focused and led by women professionals. So I feel like it kind of addressed a few of those different issues that time. Yeah. So yeah. It showed up, like, were they people who like, I guess, already had an interest in audio and had schooling behind them? Or, like, what kind of folks did you attract for that event? Yeah, so some of them were. um, We did do, like, an intake interview to see where people were at, and it was open to any experience level. Some were musicians who had no experience on the engineering, mixing, production side. A handful of people were, you know, just kind of, like, engaged in feminist action and art and wanted to just be a part of this thing that was happening like a small percentage which is cool um but like mostly it was you know musicians who were just starting to learn this stuff and felt feeling isolated doing it on their own in their room um and then some were students some had a couple people from um the school i had uh graduated from came out but who i didn't know and they just learned about the event and came um so it was a wide range from people who knew absolutely nothing to people who were already doing some amount of professional work in the field. So that was really neat. Um, I think it's a little tricky to navigate what level of engagement you can hit or what level of um, expertise to put out there when you're a workshop facilitator and you're trying to cater to a number of different experience levels. Um, but I think for anyone that the kind of the concepts went over their head, they still got the experience of being in this space with people who were excited about the same thing. And I, and to witness other, you know, women using technology in this way and the confidence they were putting out there. And I think that that in itself was quite meaningful to everyone, which is cool. Yeah. So cool. I wish I was there. (laughs) How old was I? But yeah, I would. That's so cool. (laughs) Did you just run it the one year as a like kind of punctuating point on your uh, thesis? My thesis project. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It was just the one year and I I had a, you know, the best of intentions of continuing it on. But the funding I received for it because it was a free event and um, you know, you know, lunch provided and everything. I didn't want it to have any, you know, financial barriers for for entry. So um, it was funded through a couple of different research um, funding programs that I accessed through McMaster. And so it was moving out of that and trying to find Arts Council funding that might have made sense and just having a hard time finding something that seemed like a good fit. And 
um, finding, I mean, I, I, I needed a bigger team. I really like, like I coordinated it and, and did most of the organizing myself other than the actual workshops and those facilitators were incredible and did an amazing job. Um, and just like feeling also like, okay, I just was in grad school, not working as much. And now I'm needing to go out and like make money. And it's this <laughs> theme of my career. And, um, you know, it's still there to a degree, but the, just like the freelance panic mindset of, if I don't make money, if I say no to this one thing, everything is going to fall apart. Yeah. <laughs> no one will ever okay, work I'm with me again. I'm interested in this phenomenon <laughs> yes. because um, I will be, you know, entering the freelance world uh, shortly. Mm -hmm. And uh, I guess the idea of it's up to you and you've got to keep pushing. And like some days I don't feel like pushing, but you have to, and then you have to figure out what to say yes to, what to say no to. So like, how did that learning curve about for you how have you adjusted your approach to freelancing it's hard I'm still just learning how to adjust it and like I've definitely burnt myself out so many times just saying yes to everything and also just like I'm finally in the last like a couple of years really like I've really honed in on mastering and like open my like have my own studio and like that's my jam right now but for the longest time I was like I gotta do this and learn this oh do you Sorry, someone's yeah. hammering. Yeah. Oh, okay. I <laughs> thought maybe someone was knocking on the door. Anyways, yeah, just um, feeling like I needed to branch out my audio skills because if something dried up in this department, I needed to be able to do, you know, live sound and audio post and like music mixing and like had to do everything so that I could always have some kind of work and. I've learned a lot of skills and met a lot of people doing that, but I've definitely, yeah, I've burnt out a lot. I've, I've worked like many 60 plus hour weeks and weekends, evenings. And, um, and you know, it took me, it's, it has taken me, I've been working professionally in audio for probably 20 years and it's taken me till now to be like, okay, it's okay to say no to some things. It's okay to, like book time for yourself into your schedule and like yeah the the burnout can really be cumulative as well and um so I it's like something I wish I'd sorted out for myself a little bit more sooner and I think you know for women and like you know non-binary trans people especially the feeling that everything could fall apart at any moment has potential to be a lot stronger and so it's been, yeah, it's been a hard one to sort of f to figure figure this whole question out. It's still a work in progress for me, honestly. Like, Katie, I wish I could give you, like, <laughs> a definitive answer. <laughs> but, like, yeah, but definitely, you know, saying no to some things is not going to break. It's not going to ruin your career. People will still come to you if you say no to a few things and making sure you invest in yourself and your own like well-being is super important and just remembering those those two things um and yeah and it's a lot of hard work and a lot of there will be like really intense busy weeks um and other ones that are a lot less busy and that's ultimately going to be likely be okay and so just remembering that and i don't know it's a hard question <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Um, uh, how do you do with the um this alternating momentums kind of busy 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 and like do you get uneasy in the stillness after like a kind of crunch yeah I mean I definitely did for the longest time and and just in the last couple of years I'm like savoring the less busy moments and also like it, I've always sort of worked independently freelance, but now I'm sort of, it's more of a proper business that I'm trying to establish. And so I'm always behind on keeping that side of things organized. So I'll, you know, I won't panic. I'll get other things done that need to get done. And then, you know, I'll even like book weeks off or days off where I'm only focusing on that stuff to try to catch up. Um, And yeah, it's just, it's been a lesson on, um, I don't have to do everything and say yes to everything. And um, these weeks can actually be really positive for getting things done, staying on top of what you need to stay on top of, and just for your mental health altogether. So um, yeah. it's been a process to get to a point of feeling okay about it. But And I talk to friends all the time who work in the industry, and everyone goes through it. It's very common. Everyone has that panic of, Okay, I've I've only got one thing booked next month. Or like that's it for me. It's over. Um, right, my career is absolutely it's done. done. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and then the, often things do come up, and in there are ways to make ends meet. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's funny because it's like the chaos and uncertainty can be an area I guess to thrive in. Hmm. It, especially at some points, you know, it's like the excitement I can imagine getting on board with it, but then I feel like life always throws curveballs and there is a element of stability that we all kind of need to some degree. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so much of what I've done and experienced in different places I've worked, I would never trade it in. Like I, I love it. It's been really fun and exciting and then, um, but it's not always sustainable at that level. So I'm just, mm-hmm embracing that a bit more and trying to chill out a bit more Good. <laughs> without Good. Yeah. without feeling trying to not feel any like regrets about you know those past decisions because I did still gain a lot from those periods of time so and met so many people and it's been great so yeah 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 <laughs> so okay um can you tell me about uh teaching at yeah. next university and I guess opening uh uh, your studio. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So yeah, I, uh, part of why I wanted to do my master's degree as well was to start to teach a little bit more. Cause I had, again, like after I graduated worked in sort of a, t- a technical position at the school where I started doing workshops and teaching to a certain degree, some courses, and I really enjoyed it. Like love connecting with students, love, um, those love learning from students as well. I feel like I learn so much from my students all the time, which is amazing. Um, and just love like being part of those moments where a student, like something connects for them and you see them kind of like light up because they've like something makes sense and they understand it and they're excited about it. And it's like, it's just a really cool thing. So um, yeah. So right after I uh, graduated from McMaster, I started teaching at X university with RTA school of media. Um, and it's been nine years now that I've been teaching there. Um, and I teach a first year sound production course, which is largely focused on podcasting, which is really fun. Cool. Yeah. Um, I teach an intro. That's a newer course by the way. Cause like for podcasting must be like, 
Yeah. Well, it's not called podcasting. It's called first year sound production, but it's a way to teach audio production and also let the students work on something in a topic or area that they're interested in. So it's a good way to just, you know, keep students engaged and learn audio skills at the same time. Um, Yeah. So, yeah, it's a fun course. Um, And I'm not currently teaching these two courses, but I've taught them a a bunch in the past. But uh, intermediate audio course that's a lot more kind of music production focused um, and an audio post-production course as well. So I've taught those three over the last nine years. Um, And it's been great. Um, Again, like I love teaching. And again, it's um, precarious work, unfortunately. You know, it's... I think it's an important conversation to have, but there's a lot of kind of problems inherent in the academic institution that need to be solved. And one of them is how much precarious faculty there is. Um, So I'm a sessional instructor and I've been there for nine years, but I have to reapply for my job every single year, like every year. Um, And, you know, you only get uh, benefits through the school if you work a certain number of hours. Um, And if you work a certain number of hours, then your professional work has to fall to the wayside because you just don't have time for it because it's it's a big kind of demanding chunk of time if you teach that number of hours. Um, So you're kind of doing this juggle of like, you know, I really like teaching and it's it's really great, but I could say yes to teaching all these courses and then my mastering business doesn't like I can't kind of keep up with everything. And then next year, I might get half the courses that I did this year. And then in the meantime, my mastering business has suffered. And so it's this kind of like balancing act, um, unfortunately. Um, You know, again, like a lot of great aspects to teaching there. I love uh, a lot of my colleagues and it's it's a lot of fun. But there's just um, a growing body of kind of precarious labor happening in academia that um, is is not super equitable and um, yeah, it's just another another one of the things that I have to juggle and feel um, like like I never know what's going to happen in my career. So I thought it was going to provide stability. I was like, oh my no. god, I'm so excited <laughs> no. to hear that. Gosh, no. I got there, but yeah, <laughs> like, I, I guess I never thought about yeah, like unless you're like tenured or whatever, it's basically kind of crap. Exactly. Like, it's in yeah. terms of yeah. Like it's not that it doesn't like, you know, it's it's when you're when you're in it and you know what you've got and you've you can plan for the like, you know, for me, like four months of the year that I teach, it's like this great thing where I'm like, okay, now I know my contract. I know that this is coming in for me. Great. So you've got this like window of stability, but the long term right. part isn't there, unfortunately. But um yeah, so but it's but it's great and I'll you know, I'll continue teaching. Uh, with the school, I think I just I just get so much out of it that you know it's it's wonderful and hopefully there's some progress made in terms of it's it's not this one school it's it's kind of academia in general right now it's just the direction things are going it's like a bit more of a business now than it used to be than a public institution yeah. so um, yeah um, so so there's that and then you know before I got into mastering. As, as deeply as I am, I also went a little deeper into film and television <laughs> Coming after grad school. Um, I worked as an ADR engineer and joined the DGC union and did some sound editing as well. So I've, I worked at uh, my first ADR gigs was with uh, Tattersall 
Sound and Picture, which is now Sim. Um, now Formosa, I think, no? I think it's Formosa now. Is it now? it changed again. Yeah, okay. it changed again. Shh, I knew that. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, no, yeah. this is so new. This is so new. Yeah, like okay. two weeks ago. Yeah. Okay, okay. But yeah, well, Tattersall. Yeah. Tattersall, yeah. Um, and Jam Post, which is another facility with Sound Edit and, and ADR studios um worked with like take five productions i've done some work with sound dogs and urban post um and that was fun so like i got to work on um like the handmaid's tale a little bit a couple episodes uh the show rain and winona erp and rookie blue and some other just like cool fun shows um and yeah some fun like adr stories as well like that was a, a pretty it was a really fun job actually um i enjoyed it uh not something i do i can do anymore because i moved out to the country now and it's just you have to be where the studios are if you want to do studio work so um yeah but it was it was i mean it'd be nice to go do adr in prince edward county i mean it would we could do sort of like a retreat adr retreat here yeah (laughs) one day let's start a business yes Um, so cool. So what are your stories? What, what comes to mind? Oh, um, a, a funny one to me anyways was like I uh, was starting just starting to work on The Handmaid's Tale. It had just like started up and it was and again, I only worked on a couple episodes in the first season, but it was at this facility uh, in Toronto that I was biking to and I was biking through this kind of weird path and through the Humber River and there's this little bridge that I have to cross and then get up and go to the facility. And as I started a- approaching, and this was, again, my first day doing ADR on The Handmaid's Tale. And I was like, you know, I time out my bike ride because I know exactly how long my ride is. It's like exactly 40 minutes. And you know, I leave myself like 15 minutes of like leeway. And I show up and the bridge is blocked off. I'm seeing cop cars and I'm seeing just like stuff everywhere. And I thought there was like an accident. There was a car on the bridge. I thought there was an accident that happened. And I was like, Oh crap, this is the only way to get where I need to go on time. And I was like, they're going to send me all the way back and around. And I'm going to be late for this first day on the handmaid's tale. And then I got a little bit closer and there's a couple cops standing there and they were just like, Oh yeah, you can go through, just be careful. Cause there's a bit of like debris on the bridge. And I was like, what? Like they're letting me bike through an accident. Like it made no sense. And then I got closer to the bridge and there were these men standing there at the front of the bridge with these like guns like automatic rifle guns like what is going on I was terrified but they just moved aside and let me go and I was just in this like weird headspace of like I I don't want to be passing through these people right now but it's the only way I can get to work on time and I biked a little further and then I saw these rows of red dresses um on the bridge and it turns out they were actually shooting a scene from the handmaid's tale on that bridge at the time and that's why there was so much chaos and commotion (laughs) and it was just this funny like weird you know like bumping into the set and having a panic and it's like it's you watch the show and you feel the kind of terror in that world and I felt like I had this little glimpse of terror just like showing up in these men with guns like guarding this space and it was just weird to get into that mindset right before going to start my first day on that show so um it's like method adr engineering method adr engineering that's exactly right they set it all up for me on purpose they knew i was coming they wanted some good recordings so (laughs) 
they said debris they didn't say they should have think it's a film set that's all they had to say you know pretty easy yeah don't don't be alarmed just debris okay thanks um yeah another one that's like maybe a good one to share because there's a bit of a lesson involved um i was recording and it was for uh you know it was a a show that was a higher you know higher higher budget show i'm not going to name the name of the show or actors or anything else just because um and there was a post-production supervisor dialed in through skype who was listening into the session and then dialogue adr supervisor kind of in the room and um i because i'm the like the tech person, I'm, I coordinated everything. I did a sound test ahead of time, made sure Skype was coming through to the talent's headphones, et cetera, et cetera. Then the talent showed up and thought it was, you know, just them and the ADR supervisor in the room and launched into a bunch of gossip about the show, like some really specific, important information, like I again can't say what it is, but it was. I had a moment. I saw that it was happening, and I had this panic because there was someone on on Skype listening in, and they had no idea. And it was definitely a private conversation. So I had to like bolt out of the room and run over and hit mute. And then I was like, "What am I gonna do? Like, this is a mess. Like, who who do I do I talk?" Like, do I bring this up? What do I do? So I did bring it up with the supervisor and they were very grateful that I brought it up with them because then they had to go and check in with the person on Skype. And, you know, and then, of course, like it got back to the actor and it was this really messy thing that I felt like very responsible for in some ways. I didn't, you know, I wasn't the one giving up any information, but it was just this one um, moment of realization of, of of how important it is to keep microphones off until they need to be used because you know anything anything could happen and I just like that was a, a big yeah a big learning lesson for me um, in uh, in my career so yeah oh that's so <laughs> not your fault but it's funny because anyone who works like um, uh, on production sound will kind of say like you know you turn those those uh, labs off because someone will head to the washroom with their oh, yeah. on or whatever. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because I've done like a bunch of dialogue editing as well. And you're doing outtakes where you're replacing some words with words from other takes for whatever reason. And you pull out the audio from other takes and you you listen to what's happening at the start. And yeah, sounds from people in the bathroom, gossip like of between actors. And like, luckily, that stuff was only heard by us editors and doesn't go past that. But it's just this, yeah, this lesson and, you know, doing live broadcast news as well. And there are certain hosts that would talk all the way up to the second they were on air. So you, you cameras are live, music, like opening music is on and they're just, you know, chatting away until the, you know, the one and then they're on air and that's when they stop. So it's being on that mic button and, and knowing when to mute it and really being thoughtful of, you know, everything is about making the talent comfortable whenever you want, like to make good to tell good stories the talent has to feel comfortable and you need to build this relationship of trust with them and if if things like this happen you know live broadcast they find out that that I didn't mute their mic in time and that there's some of their chat was 
broadcast on the air, then they're going to feel less confident the next time they're on air because that kind of thing can happen. And then that's going to impact the story or the show. And so it's really important to think about these things um, at every step. <laughs> so yeah, I learned that lesson in really a couple valid. couple of different ways, but yeah. Um, yeah. Do you teach your students this kind of stuff, like the kind of interpersonal trust building? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mentioned that stuff. There's also things like when I was uh, doing the live TV stuff, I'd also, and, and ADR, both of those, I'd be responsible for putting lav mics on the performers and sometimes it's hidden in their clothes sometimes it's it can sit you know if it's adr it doesn't matter if the lab is hidden or not but for live tv or um on a live set you've got to hide microphones and it's also just knowing how to communicate with people in a way that you are sort of getting consent informing them i'm going to connect this mic to you on this exact spot um, do you want me to instruct you on how to do it or do you mind if I do it myself and kind of walking them through the process and just making sure the talent is always feeling comfortable and what the value is in, in approaching it like that. So definitely yeah. something, a conversation I have with students for sure. Yeah, no, this um, is really, really valuable. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so that was like film industry stuff and I still do some some audio post work here and there, but um, in the... Yeah, mastering has been. We've, I've spoken about it so little, but it's really what my life has been over the past couple of years, and it's been really amazing. Um, uh, I'll share another story. Please, <laughs> this, <yes>. is, <laughs> this is so great. Um, so, mastering is something that I just I never thought of myself as ever doing in like in my life, and part of the reason for that was that when I was doing my undergrad. Um, I was doing a practicum project and it was in music and our team had recorded some stuff and we wanted to go get it mastered. And I didn't know much about what mastering was, but I was super excited to be part of the process. And so myself and two of the guys on our team booked at this still very prominent mastering studio with a prominent mastering engineer in Toronto um, and showed up. And I was just like so eager to learn all about it. And um, showed up and this person, this guy's working on our project. And at some point he's like, kind of takes a break and comes up to me and sits down and starts talking to me about this study he read about how boys are more naturally technically inclined than girls and started explaining this article, you know, this study was done where an object would be put in front of boys and they would kind of take it apart and naturally take it apart and figure out how it works. And when they put the same object in front of girls, they would just admire the aesthetics of it. And I was like, you know, uh, that I think that there's a lot of problems with what you're seeing. It's like a really essentialist view. Um, socialization happens from such an early age that, you know, even before the studies happening, these girls and boys have been exposed to a world that encourages one of them to take the thing apart and the other one to admire the thing. And we just had this back and forth about it. And he really like was pushing back and it got a little heated. And then at one point I just was like, wait a minute, like I'm here to look at this studio and learn the ins and outs of this technical and creative, but also very technical process. And I was interested in that side of it. And here I am paying you as your client to tell me how I don't belong in this space. And I was like, this is so messed up. And it took me like a leaving the space to kind of like put this all together and, um, 
And I just felt really discouraged by it. Like it was like such a, a blatant, like, I don't know, like a shutdown or something that happened. And so, uh, you know, my next experience in a mastering room wasn't super positive either. And so it's just, you know, as I was getting in deeper with engineering and mixing and production, um, I just, um, it just never popped up as something that I could do in my head. Uh, and then it was like a number of years ago now, but, um, a friend of mine, like a very close friend of mine just randomly sent me a couple tracks and he said, will you master these for me? And I was like, I don't master. And he was like, you don't master, but you can master. So just do it. And I was like, okay, that's a good point. I've never actually tried it. I'm just saying I don't do it. So um, I did it and I tried it out and I enjoyed it. Um, and there were notes, things to address, and that was totally fine. And then I made those adjustments, learned a lot in just that first conversation of like, this is what we're looking for. It's sounding like this for now and being like, okay. And things started just kind of clicking in a little bit more and um, eventually got them some tracks that they were really happy with. Um, and then I was like, oh, that's really cool. And I actually really enjoyed this thing. And it from there started just progressing really naturally. And people, you know, he asked me to work on a couple of other clients. And then the those clients mentioned me to some other people. And it was just this organic thing where I just sort of became a mastering engineer. <laughs> and it's been amazing. Like it's been, I really love, um, you know, especially the creative side of the work. Um, and I also have this, like, I like that, you know, versus, you know, engineering or producing where you're working on one project for a long period of time, which I also really enjoyed, but you sort of like get exposed to a lot of different projects in shorter periods of time. And I find that really cool and stimulating. And then also all these artists are like sending me reference tracks that they really like. And I look those up and I'm like, oh, that music's really cool too. And so I feel like I have people like curating my listening experience for me. And I find it so hard to find music in this really kind of like saturated market. And so I feel like, yeah, it's been, it's been cool. I like those aspects of it a lot. Um, wow. Yeah. So can, can you just tell, um, because I know some people have a hard time maybe, uh, understanding the distinction so how would you describe mastering to, to a layman <laughs> sure i mean mastering is sort of the final technical and creative step before a piece of music gets released into the world and um, technical in the sense that you have certain specifications that you want to meet you have to be in terms of loudness um, peak levels dynamic range. Um, and a lot of those are dependent on what the delivery format is. So, you know, vinyl versus streaming platforms, different streaming platforms have different recommendations and targets and so on. So it's a technical process in that sense. Um, and then it's also a very creative process. So you're getting these tracks that people have worked on. Um, usually it's a handful of people working on these things for a very long time. And so it's like a tight group of people that have been listening. And um, so it's them passing something on to you and you being this one extra set of ears to give things a listen and make, you know, make things in your opinion sound as good as possible. And um, so it's taking the stereo tracks that they send you, usually stereo tracks, 
um, and applying different processes like EQ and compression limiting, um, some, you know, imaging type tools, depending on what's appropriate for the song and just kind of considering what the artist's intentions are with the song and seeing if there's ways that you can enhance that um, through these different processes. And that part's really fun and, um, yeah, packaging everything up, sending it back to the clients, and then they should be ready to kind of send off to distribution after that. So, yeah. Cool. <laughs> yes. Yeah, no, that's, uh, it's cool to be this fresh set of ears. And uh, I guess you've witnessed people kind of because they've been so close to it for so long and then they're basically like, here's my baby. I trust you with yeah. it. Yeah. They must be like really excited uh, when you're through with it because like you took it to that final level that, you know, like it takes it over the edge really. And you're yeah. like, oh my God, I made this. Yeah, I mean, it's this interesting thing that has like still is is something I'm working through, but was like, especially when I first started doing it where, and I think a lot of it depends on the experience of the client and how many projects they've had mastered in the past and so on. But a lot of people come with these expectations, like, I'm so excited to get this thing mastered. And then they pass it off to you and you listen and you're like, there's not a whole lot that needs to be done. Cause like maybe this, the track is really good. The mix is really good. And then it's this whole thing of like, feeling confident knowing when to not do a lot and still saying you know you know that they're really excited to get it back and if it comes back and it's like in the same vein but like enhanced a little bit or if, if it's not like completely different and no like are you going to let them down or something and so I like there's yeah. been times earlier on especially where I've been like okay I like this sounds great but I got to try some stuff because it's my job to make this sound different and exciting for them and sometimes it just doesn't work and it's not the right thing. And it's like, yeah, it's a, it's a confidence thing and an experience thing and a knowing how to have the right conversations with your client thing to feel like um, a bit more confident and in, in being able to say, okay, this like this doesn't need much and here it is back to you. And that still is exciting. It means even if it hasn't transformed, it's still that step closer to being released and that in itself in itself is exciting. And it's also exciting to know that someone else has listened to this thing and is confirming this thing for you. That's like, yeah, right. this is awesome. Like feel excited about it. That's great. And like the fact that I didn't need to do much, that's, that's a good thing. That's an exciting thing. So yeah, there's some of that. It's just one of the things that I think is tricky. And I you know there's a lot of um, really incredible mastering engineers that have taken a very different path from me. And they've started, you know, interning at studios and working under a mentorship of um, really, you know, amazing big name mastering engineers and learned a lot from them. And um, my path has been very different. And I'm learning a lot more through artists and mixers and producers than I am from other mastering engineers because I'm just kind of independently running my own studio and doing this myself and it is still like a similar learning process but just from very different perspectives and, and different people um so yeah it's it's been interesting <laughs> yeah no that's such a good point that you have had um uh an unusual or atypical uh route mm -hmm. but 
Well, look at you. <laughs> look at you. How did you open your studio? Um, and, and why uh, Prince Edward County? Um, the why of Prince Edward County is a good question. We did have like a couple, my partner and I had a couple of friends out here, one of them being Annalise beforehand and like me knowing that there's someone else out here doing this kind of work and, um, and you know, that, that I could, you know, collaborate with or something at some point was exciting and, knowing that there's like a big music community here as well, or people just are, are into, you know, it's kind of a broad statement to make, but there's a big supportive uh, arts community here. Um, and it was just a matter of, I think, and more so for my partner, but feeling the overwhelm of living in a big city. And I think there was this idea, especially with where I was at with my work and kind of being all over the place and working so much, being like, well, if we move out to the country, um, I'm sort of forced to change this lifestyle and and take a bit more of a directed approach to things. And, you know, it might be hard at first, but to figure out a path that's less chaotic and just kind of settle into, you know, there's I just the same opportunities aren't out here. So what opportunities are here and how can we make this work? And also, how can I have more time to be a lumberjack in my life, for example? <laughs> For example, just yeah. easy pastime. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, so we just, I don't know, it was like a bit of an impulsive move on my part and um, things definitely haven't gone how I anticipated. Um, but like certain things worked out in an oddly, like, I hate to look at any positives from COVID whatsoever, but there is something that's been like that's facilitated me doing certain work remotely like you right. know classes going online yeah. and this neat thing where artists during the pandemic didn't stop making music or didn't start making stopped making art and so um they those artists passed their work on to me still and so i was still able to kind of grow my business and grow my work during that time um which has been great um and yeah, so we have this detached garage on our property and uh, during the pandemic converted it into my studio space. Before that, I was renting a space and sharing it in town with someone else. And we've since yeah converted the garage and now it's my home base um, for my studio. And uh, it feels great to just have my own space. I've always kind of bounced around to other people's spaces, shared spaces. And now I've got this thing that I was heavily involved in the process of designing and treating and you know doing all the room measurements and um it just it feels really good to have gotten a chance to do that um and yeah and I've been like it's it's just steadily uh picked up over time and um yeah it's good just took some adapting once I moved out here but yeah yeah So, but things have kind of fallen into place. You like, you're you're happy there? Yeah. Yeah. I'm happy. I do miss like the bustle of the big city sometimes. And, um, but I can, once the pandemic is a bit more under control, like I'll just go back there and work more often and I can still, I can still be in there when I feel the need to have that kind of energy. And it's so great to have access to this space whenever, like in my day-to-day life. So it's a good balance, I'd say. Yeah. 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 How far is it from Toronto? It's about two and a half hours. Yeah. Okay. So not something you want to do every day going there and back, but 
<laughs> but uh, yeah. That's nice though. I, I think, uh, I mean, you, you basically planted a seed. I mean, I think that's like that you have some roots now mm. instead of moving around. But, uh, exactly. Exactly. So that's really lovely. To it's good. Yeah. Feel that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So is school still remote for you this semester? Well, it went back part in person and part remote. And in the end, I stuck with doing only the remote courses. Um, going into the city, it's still, you know, there's the commuting aspect and I prefer to take a train than a car. So you're in a space with a lot of people, tight space, and then staying at a new space and then being in a school environment with people. Um, it felt like a lot to go right back into. So um, yeah, so I'm just doing online courses for now and um, hopefully next year I'll go back to doing some in-person courses. I, I, I do miss being in, in studios physically with students, um, though um, it's also been neat to figure out how to move you know, music production courses online and teach them from my studio. Um, and it's, you know, it's worked out pretty well for the most part. So um, yeah, yeah, what is that adjustment like? Like how do you oh, man. make it work? <laughs> It's wild. There's a lot of sort of thinking about what I think one of the important things I learned in um, moving our intermediate audio class to online and um, doing the music productions work, for example, specifically and thinking about how everyone's coming into this class in a different at a different level and knowing different things, different access to you know, a quiet space in their home, for example, um, different access to technology, like sort of having to buy a certain amount of technology to make the course happen, but different grades of technology. And typically when this course would run, it would be in person and there would be more group work and support student to student. And it just wasn't as possible to collaborate. There's ways that we made collaboration happen, but um, even making collaboration happen is trickier for certain students than others or students that were, you know, in different time zones as well. So it's really looking at, okay, we, it's meeting everyone where they're at and realizing that the outcome doesn't need to be at the same standard for everyone. And that's not what the measurement should be. It shouldn't be, are we all hitting this target? It should be, did we learn this much? And so this much for one person might get you to hear, for someone else might get you to hear, but you still are making progress because you're you're learning and looking at ways to put flexibility into assignments. So um, some people could collaborate if they were able to coordinate that and they were excited about it. Other people could work independently. People that didn't have as much music experience could pursue um, ambient or experimental pathways that's more focused on trying something and recording your results and learning from the process, whereas other students might go a more traditional I'm writing a song and recording it kind of route and just, yeah, like just making the the end result a bit more open format. And um, I feel like that worked pretty well and is sort of a necessary thing in these times, like in online remote learning environments. So, yeah, it's been yeah. pretty um, amazing to watch yeah. uh, teachers kind of adapt and, you know, make it still valuable for us mm. so uh, kudos to you for doing that. <laughs> <Thanks>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, I'm wondering I guess how um, I guess through teaching and through uh, being in the industry how have you uh, seen it 
change, I guess, from like how it may have felt like in 2013 or before. Mm -hmm. I mean, in the industry since 2013, which is, yeah, when I did that workshop until now, just seeing how much the conversation about like inclusivity and building, like trying to work towards gender like parity or equity in the industry and that conversation has just grown and grown and there's been so many different kind of inspiring um you know like I guess sound girls started probably around the same time that I was doing that project I think so, yeah but like yeah. this being a fantastic example of like this conversation carrying on and this like important work that's been happening and it, like seeing how it's making a huge difference and it's not it's not enough yet, but like, that's a big, a big change. I felt shy about talking about feeling uncomfortable being a woman in the industry and people thinking that I was like complaining or like I was, you know, blaming my feeling like I have to jump around or like my style of work on being a woman or like, but really it being a cop out or I just had these insecurities about even talking about it. And now it's like people are talking about it and it feels a lot more comfortable to talk about it. So that's a big change. Um, it's been really exciting. Um, changes in technology. So working like the, the fact that I had so many mastering gigs come towards me during a pandemic, it's because technology has changed and artists have access to technology that that's, can sound really good on a small budget and be able to self-produce and record and mix themselves and uh, still pass on work. Like if they don't have access to a studio because of shutdowns. Um, so that's been a really neat change as well. Just seeing how far inexpensive technology has come. Um, yeah. And just all of this like remote collaborative, the, the fact that we're doing this interview virtually right now, but still looking at each other is really neat. So it's so cool. I yeah. love it. I yeah. mean, I hate it. Like, cause like I go to Zoom school, I'm like, uh, no more Zoom. But yes. Like, it's also amazing. It's also amazing. I've gotten to speak to. Yeah. Totally. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. What do you hope for the future? Like for your own career or for anything? Um, what do I hope for the future? I just I just hope that people who want to develop a career in the audio industry and put the time and effort in and that they can find their success through whatever pathway it is. And even if it's a an awkward winding long one like mine, it's um it's you know that those opportunities are there and that that success can be found for you know anyone and the 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 barriers you know get broken down and that in in doing that and having these barriers broken down that i think like the creative potential can really kind of thrive even further and i think we'll start to eventually see a lot more interesting unique work coming up when more people are where diverse people are working on um, music and behind the scenes in music and, and in the sound industry in general. So yeah, I guess that's my hope for the future. <laughs> oh, yep. that's great. That's yeah. so great. Yep. It's been really um, nice talking to you, Heather. You too. You too. Um, well, thanks. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Um, I hope I'm not jumping around too much. I feel like I 
it's really, you know, doing a lot of veering there. But <laughs> no, you covered your career. I mean, well, I mean, I didn't live your career, but like from my point of view, you outlined the narrative so nicely. Yeah. Okay. And uh, is there anything um, that you want to talk about or say that uh, I didn't perhaps ask about? Um, I don't think so. I feel like I covered a lot of ground there. Yeah. yeah, I guess like, no, this is really good. yeah, I guess like one thing also that I hope for and is, is again, already happening, but just like um, thinking about like knowledge as a form of wealth that's like you accumulate over time and how everyone's knowledge comes from it's built up through interactions with other people and how it's so then important to share that wealth with others and kind of redistribute it. And so, um, yeah, I guess for people starting out, making sure that they do reach out to other people and, and try, like, just kind of go for it and feel okay if they don't hear back, like, don't take it personally, but to try. And then for those who are getting people reaching out to them to have support and mentorship to share your wealth that you, you know, had gained from other people in the past and just making sure that that whole system takes place and continues to take place. So I, uh, I guess along those lines, uh, if you're comfortable, is there um, an avenue that folks can perhaps reach out to you if they were seeking uh, advice or mentorship? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, dreamlandsmastering at gmail.com is my email address, and I'd be happy to have anyone reach out to me. So, yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah, this Thank is you. really nice. Really, cool. really nice talking to you. You too. Thank you for listening to the Sound Girls podcast. Check out soundgirls.org for more information. Our mission is to create a supportive community for women in audio and music production, providing the tools, knowledge, and support to further their careers. The Sound Girls Living History Project is a collection of oral history interviews that highlights the careers and achievements of women and underrepresented groups in audio. One of the interviews is with Stephanie Brown, a sound editor and dialogue and ADR supervisor, known for her work on The Incredible Hulk, 8 Mile, A Wrinkle in Time, and many others. Working on The Matrix is probably my favorite because at the time, we didn't know what that movie was going to be, but we knew something was going to happen. And to see the phenomenon that movie became was amazing. And then to be involved in the sequels, it's still the highlight of my career is just being involved in that. Be sure and catch the full interview with Stephanie Brown, along with all the other Living History interviews, over on the Sound Girls website or YouTube channel.